invite you all to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and we'll be continuing our series through this uh, uh, gospel today. This is a passage we're going to look at that uh, speaks to children, so it's fitting to our baptism time today. It's also a very direct, uh, and it points actually a gruesome uh, picture of our struggle with sin as well. So we get kind of the, the, the best of both worlds in this passage. We're actually going to begin looking at uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 36, and then we'll skip and look at verses 42 through 50. But even before we dive in, uh, we're not the only ones that are skipping something. If you look carefully at these verses, particularly in the 42 to 50 range, you'll notice that it seems someone else has skipped something. There's no verse 44, nor is there a verse 46, unless you have a really, really old, old Bible that goes back a long, long ways. And this is an interesting thing for us before we jump into this passage. Uh, Both of these verses, you may have a little footnote at the bottom of your uh, Bible page there, speak the same uh, words that verse 48 does, speaking about the torments of hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And I mentioned this uh, off the bat to you, uh, number one, so when we read through the verses, if you're carefully following along, you're not too perplexed about why that verse 44 and verse 46 are missing. And also, as a chance to really talk about what this tells us about the soundness, the reliability, the truthfulness of what we have before us. Uh, It would seem that somewhere into the years of church history when those monks were putting those verses in here, the original text of the Bible doesn't have those numbers. Those were put in along the way to help us find our way around. That someone must have inadvertently added in the same verses, same passage from verse 48. So not actually any new information doesn't actually change the content of the Bible at all. But what's actually fascinating about it is it shows us the diligence that the church has had uh, throughout history to maintain God's Word. But as we look back at those early copies of the manuscripts of Mark and say these verses aren't in there, we keep a tight rein, a secure rein on what the Bible says because it's God's truth, even in places where it basically says the same thing as verse 48. And I want to take this opportunity, too, to remind us of the beauty of the soundness and reliability of God's Word compared to all other books out there. You think about it, about a hundred years after the time of the apostles, we have our first copies of an entire book of the New Testament, and within a few years out after that have over 50 ancient copies of the full text of the New Testament. This may not sound like a lot to us until we compare it to something like Homer's Iliad. The time gap between when that was originally written and the earliest copy is 2,000 years. And they only have one ancient copy of that work. For Plato's works, the gap's about 1,300 years and just seven copies. The Bible's an incredibly reliable, sound document, even just from a historical perspective. 
And so I point out these verses to you so that we can know what's happening as we read through these verses and be reminded of the truthfulness, the veracity of God's Word. In recognition of that, I invite you to stand now as I read these verses for us today. Beginning in Mark chapter 9, verse 30, and as you can tell, my voice is just hanging on today, so we will hopefully make it all the way through our time in this message. Verse 30 of Mark chapter 9, I'll read aloud as you read along silently. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching the disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And then jumping to verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck And he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell, the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. may be seated. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, uh, this is a challenging uh, passage of Scripture for us to understand some of the things that it says. Absolutely challenging for us to apply many of the things that it says. Help us, help me, as we look at it now and seek to have our life transformed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the movie 127 Hours tells the horrific story of rock climber Aaron Ralston who headed out on what he thought in April 2003 would be a day hike through the canyons of Utah. He went with minimal gear and ended up in what would turn out to be a five-day ordeal that nearly took his life. 
You recall, if you remember the story or happen to have been able to (laughs) grind your way through that film, that upon stepping on a boulder at the top of one of these canyons, I guess 30 feet or so high, both Rock and Ralston fell into the canyon, and in some uh, incident, his arm was pinned between the rock wall and the canyon. Ralston remained there for several days, and I won't go into the details, but as you recall, had to free himself through removing his arm in order to escape death and live. I'll spare you the details of this, but I will say not all people are quite as gracious. I share this story with permission of a couple of years ago when I gathered together with our own Graham Holmes running the soundboard back there. So he'll cut me off if anything's erroneous in this account. We were going to have some lunch five years ago or so over at Casino Superior at Brookwood. I was already feeling a little bit under the weather, kind of blood sugar feeling a little low going into the lunch meeting. There at uh, Cosina Superior, the open grill with the scents of the meat and the sounds and all the people moving around. Uh, Graham was fired up because he had just read the book about Aaron Ralston and wanted to share with me every gory detail of the account. Uh, Being the manly man that I attempt to be anyway, I insisted upon sitting there and taking these blows of description after description of what Ralston had to do to free himself, even as I could see my vision beginning to get red. You know that feeling? The beads of sweat starting to pour down the back of my neck, lightheadedness. Uh, Finally, I I compromised on my manliness and said, i got to go to the restroom. I spent about five minutes just with my, my head bowed down trying to get the blood flowing. My collar was completely soaking wet by the time I got done. It came back out, and Graham immediately went to pick up where he had left off. I said, no, no, brother, just tell me, did the guy live or die? That's all I want to know. Well, Jesus gives us some potentially gory details, if you will, in this passage today, he does it for our own good. He does it just as Ralston did to save our lives. He cares enough that we would be rescued not from a physical sort of harm or from spiritual harm. And we would understand what we need to be willing to do to walk with Jesus in that way. This is part of a series, really, as you've seen in the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us for worship, of a, of a series of really decisive statements by Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, we saw the passage where he says, it's not the stuff outside us that makes us corrupted and, and sinful and needing God's mercy. It's from within, from right inside of us that it flows, all the things that are wrong with us. It's a decisive, bold statement. A few, uh, just last week, uh, Harrison walked us through the passage where Jesus says, you know, you've got to take up your cross as part of following me. And that means saying along the way that I'm going to lose my life the way I want it to be so that I can have it saved in Jesus. And if I'm trying to save it for myself, I'm actually losing it. It's actually slipping out of my grasp. 
Now, as we look at this passage, uh, some have called it hyperbole or exaggeration, and, and, and certainly I think I've probably even thought of it that way. But it's really not. It's really not exaggeration or hyperbole. It's simply a metaphor for effect. Jesus is just talking about something physical, the arm, the foot, the gouging of the eye, to emphasize something spiritually. And that is this. How important it is for us not to have just some kind of generic faith. We talk about the fact that we receive God's grace and mercy simply by faith in Christ, and that is absolutely true. But it is a certain type of faith that we are to have. And that type of faith is one that is desiring to be vigilant in the fight against sin in our lives and the fight for greater joy and greater delight in walking in the Lord. It's that type of faith. And so that's what I want us to see today as we look at this passage. You can turn uh, with me if you want to in your uh, worship guide or turn to the page in your worship guide at the back of it where there's a note section. And I, I tried to summarize it this way. I'm not sure I did the best job of summarizing anything. That's a pretty long sentence for the main idea there. But it's just this. Since the kingdom of God is worth everything... Through Christ, that's really important, we don't do this in our own strength, through Christ, we should seek to forcefully remove whatever would keep us from the kingdom. We should seek to do that. Now, the reality is is that the scriptures uh, tell us uh, all over the place about this, and uh, some of us uh, right away might be a little bit uncomfortable even just reading these passages. Again, how do we fit this into our grid, our right and true grid, that we are saved, justified, declared righteous before God simply by faith in Him, not by anything we do? Sounds like here i got to get rid of sin completely in my life. i got to cut it off, otherwise probably headed away from the Lord, not towards Him. I think what Jesus is trying to address for us is the same thing that James talks about in the book of James where he says that faith without works is dead. Again, that the type of faith that we should have is a faith that generates a desire to be transformed. That as we receive grace, we receive a transforming grace, a work of grace that changes our lives. This is no mere fire insurance that we're talking about with the gospel. This isn't something we check off our list. Harrison did a great job sharing with the baptism, even with these little ones that come here. What we're acknowledging is their need of God's grace, their need to to receive that, to know that, to walk in that, and to look for God to do that work in their lives. Same is true for you and me, whatever stage of life we're in. And the reality is, we, and I'll start with myself, we don't really fight sin vigilantly in our lives. I mean, this stuff seems extreme because it's outside of our box, is it not? You talk about a battle with sin, I'm more likely to do one of those sort of World War II de- World War I deals, you know, where they got into those trenches and, hey, I'm happy, you know, they're about two or three miles apart, let's all just sit here for a couple of years. Meanwhile, sin's probably flanking me on the end, coming around. That's where we are with sin, and Jesus reminds us here that if we're to get and grow and experience greater joy in the Lord, we actually have to fight for it. 
And he's talking to the disciples about this because the disciples have gotten pretty confused, haven't they? They're wandering around, and I read these earlier verses for you because Jesus says to them again, this is like the third chapter in a row, that he said, in some form or fashion, I'm coming here to die. I'm coming here to lay down my life. I'm going to be raised up so there's hope, but I'm coming here to serve, to suffer, to die. And what's the first thing they do when they get on the road after that little (laughs) convocation there with Jesus? Now, you you aren't going to be the greatest. I'm going to be the greatest. I'm the greatest in the kingdom. You guys aren't the greatest. I'm number one in the kingdom. Missing the point entirely. Jesus wants to remind us here that that battle for us to be greatest, that's one of the central issues in our life. That pride, that self-sufficiency, that self-sustaining nature we have has to be fought at every turn. We'll talk a minute about why he grabs the children and talks about the child related to that. I think it's helpful. One of my fellow uh, pastors in town, Bob Flayhart, uh, put it this way and, and well stated, I think, that it will help us to think of the Christian life, the Christian faith, as a waltz if we're thinking about dances. And certainly not as a bunny hop or a Texas two-step. And what he says and makes good sense to me is that uh, we tend to think, it can be easy to think of the Christian life as just a bunny hop. That one step of faith. As we know faith is important, we know we've got to have faith in Christ and what he's done for us. Indeed, that's true. But that's just a one-step dance. Texas two-step is a little bit better if we understand that there is faith and repentance involved. You see that throughout the Bible, and maybe some of us understand. There's got to be a a heart-level sorrow that I am a sinful person, that I turn away from God, that I don't please Him. That kind of repentance and a desire to turn. But Flayheart likes to talk about the fact that really Christian life should be more of a waltz. I don't know anything about dancing, but apparently that's a three-step dance, faith, repentance, and fighting, and fighting. These verses talk about it in a more sort of negative, I guess you'd say reactive, defensive sense of getting rid of those things that aren't so good in our lives, but we also can talk about it fighting for those things that are good in our lives. All of that is involved in our walk, and the beautiful thing, I think you've got it in your notes in your worship guide, one thing is that we get to do that. That we even have the privilege because Christ has worked in our lives. That we even have the power to begin to change and walk in the way that the Lord would have us. That we even want to. That we've seen the, the beauty of, even though we're catching just a little glimpse of it, of the things of God's kingdom. And that we want to walk in those things. And lastly, as I've been talking about already, that we really need to. That our faith needs to work out its way. It needs to demonstrate, bear fruit. The gospel of, uh, or the, the letter of 1 John speaks to this. If you want to turn with me in your Bible, you can, all the way to the very back, right before Revelation. There's a couple little books back in there. 1 John is one of them. It's interesting. It says this in verse 6 of chapter 1 of 1 John. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him, with the Lord, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We're going to be able to do this perfectly? No, it goes on in verse 8 and says, if we say that we have no sin, 
We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. So there's supposed to be a change in our life. Look over at chapter 3 of that same letter, 1 John. Chapter 3 speaks about it. Again, putting these things together, grace and our vigilant response. 1 John chapter 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. God calls us as his sons, not because of anything we've done. And yet if you read along with me in verse 2, it says, Beloved, we are children of God now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We're going to look at a couple other passages in a few minutes. And look at this. But it's all over scripture. This reality of God's grace coming in our lives. And the absolute need for a response. A faith that is yielding fruit. That's vigilant for the things of the kingdom. Let's take a minute and pick a few of these elements of the passage apart and see what we learn looking back in Mark. I think they'll help us to fill in the blanks of all that Jesus would have us to see here. Mark chapter 9, again looking at verses 35 through 37, he calls this child to him and says, hey, this is how you are to receive the kingdom. And then in verse 42 he goes on and says, not only that, but how you treat this child shows forth the things of the kingdom. In the ancient world, in Jesus' times, a child really had almost no value. They weren't viewed as very valuable. Uh, we, we have a sort of schizophrenia today, I have to say, when you think about Jesus' call for us to welcome the children. On the one hand, uh, our, our culture uh, values children wonderfully. We come for special times like this, like the uh, the baptism and gathering together. We value the education of our, our children and want to see that they're taken care of and protected. We have all these fancy car seats to make sure that they, you know, they're strapped in like astronauts. NASA's got nothing on us in our minivans. Um, we've got all of that, but we've got this schizophrenia as a culture as well. We don't value unborn life. We don't value... Uh, children in the fullest extent. I read recently that uh, nine out of ten uh, Down syndrome pregnancies uh, are now, when they're identified, uh, terminated. You ever noticed that? You looked around lately? I'm not saying that's an easy thing to raise a Down syndrome child. But it's a scary thing, what we're doing. Jesus says, welcome the children in, receive the children, but of course he's making a point beyond that. He's making a spiritual point. And he says that these little ones are sort of the least valuable people in, in their culture. They, they don't really have a lot to commend. They don't give a lot to us. They just take, they eat, and they, you know, it takes money to take care of them. Jesus was saying that's how we ought to treat. If the things of the kingdom are bearing fruit in our lives, if we're moving away from I'm the greatest, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom, then one of the first things we'll do is we'll look around and see not just the children around us, but anybody who's in need, anybody who's struggling, anybody who's not numbered among those who have it together, 
and we'll figure out ways to help them. And certainly we'll help our children. I mean, the reverse of this, right, is this thing about the millstone. It's kind of funny these uh, uh, commentators like to write about this millstone and point out the fact that, uh, that it was the, the millstone. The word here is for the millstone the donkey would push around in the circle to kind of crunch the, the grain, if you've ever seen that in a movie. And that was like the 500-pound millstone, and that we should know that it wasn't talking about the 100-pound millstone that a human would push around. And I, I thought that was amusing reading that this week, as if that's going to help you if you've been thrown in the water with that thing wrapped around your neck. I don't think it, 100 pounds or 500 pounds, it ain't going to be pretty. Jesus' point is, uh, the flip side of it is this, we ought to really love those who are needy, we ought to really love the children. And, and we're a church that I think values that, and, and, but can continue to value that even more. Again, uh, put together some of the schizophrenia we've got with our uh, passion for our kids' sports, our kids' extracurricular activities, or, or other family entertainment in contrast to what, at least in the Peters family, I confess, I so easily set aside, which is that time for opening the Bible, reading the Bible to my kids, that time for talking to them about spiritual lessons about the things of the Lord and making those points, that Commitment, that commitment compared to our other priorities of getting the kids here to be in the Sunday school time. The children's church time is, is great, but that Sunday school time is really where we're trying to teach our children that meet. All of those things are challenges for us to welcome, to receive these little ones. But what do we learn here about eternal condemnation? I'll go through, quickly through these points. Well, Jesus says, first of all, that it's an absolute reality. It's not a figment of some ancient mindset, but it is uh, true and real. And Jesus' point here, again, is not to just freak us out, to cause us to run and go grab some fire insurance in Jesus, sign a policy. His point is to challenge us to have a genuine faith in him, a faith that involves a, a desire to be changed, and that that's vital for our eternity. Second Peter talks about this whole thing as well. Again, this is at the back of the Bible. All the way back there just before that first John. I can read it to you. You don't necessarily need to turn it there. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Again, I want you to see this pattern laid out in Scripture. Peter says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. He says you've got a righteousness that's by faith. It comes as a gift, if you will. But then listen to what Peter says right after that. Verse 5, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. And then verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Peter's just saying the same thing that we saw in 1 John, that we see in James, and that Jesus is telling us. That the kind of faith we should have is a faith that responds and is diligent to seek to walk in the things of God. These two things aren't optional. We don't just kind of receive this fire insurance and then maybe I will or will not pursue the Lord. Both of these things have to go together. 
And that leads us to our last point. We'll have to talk about salt another time. But our last point is this. How serious are we supposed to be about this? Well, Jesus tells us. Life and death serious. Life and death serious. Again, his main point is this. If you could change your nature and move more towards me and the joy of my kingdom and move away from sin by chopping off your hand, it would be worth it. It would be worth it. It doesn't get much clearer than that. That's how valuable the kingdom is. That's how destructive sin is to it to us, even if we don't see it as that damaging or harmful. That's what Jesus is saying. I like what John Owen said. He said, if you be not killing sin, sin will be killing you. If you be not killing sin, sin will be killing you. Man, that's true in my life. Man, that's true in my life. You know, sin's kind of like this sort of parasite thing. And I'll wrap up with this. It's kind of like this parasite that I guess is attached to us. And it's sort of uh, small, but it's kind of crying out for some food all the time. And you think sometimes, I think, I won't roll you into this, I think I'll feed it a little bit. And that will cause it to shut up. I'll make a little peace with it, make a little compromise with it, and that will cause it to shut up. You know what happens when we feed it? It just gets bigger. <laughs> just gets bigger. And it's kind of like that old uh, Incredible Hulk. I guess they got a new Incredible Hulk out now. You all know the story. You know, he gets to that point where the, the anger, you know, he's got something wrong inside him. It's a good picture, actually, of our sin. He's got whatever they did with his blood or something, he's got a problem. But he gets angry just like the rest of us do. But when he gets angry, that thing starts to explode. And maybe, maybe that's a struggle for some of us in here. And, and for a while, he can kind of manage it, and his eyes start to get a little green, you know, in the movie. And maybe his, his skin gets a little bit of that tinge. And sometimes he can shut it down. But when it reaches a certain point, He's not in control anymore, is he? That thing is taking control of him. He's a a big green monster. It's not a bad picture of us. And whether we realize it or not, whether our sins are things that people would really get upset about if they heard about, they seem like they're acceptable and okay in our culture, Jesus reminds us ultimately it's out of the overflow of our heart that these things come. And so today I want you to think is, Is your understanding, is my understanding of grace one that we think grace is just a a car to just do whatever we want to? The Scriptures say that. No. Scripture says in Romans 6, by no means shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase. Absolutely not. And then lastly, I encourage us to think about the kingdom itself. Jesus is inviting them to greater privilege and greater joy and greater walking in the kingdom. And so when we fight in this way, it's not just some gruesome thing that we do. It's like that Aaron Ralston guy stuck in that canyon. Why did he have to do that? He had to do it so he could have life. He had to do it so he could have life. So too for us today. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we uh, thank you that you are kind enough in your word, to tell us what's true. Lord, we'd like to think that um, we can just have a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card that doesn't have to change our lives at all. Lord, we thank you that the grace that we receive is free. It's a gift from you. We can't do anything to secure it. 
And yet, Lord, I just really pray for all of us, starting with myself and my own heart, that you would make us so much more vigilant for the things of your kingdom, not just for us personally, but for our culture, that we'd be salt and light. We didn't even get to talk about that. Lord, we pray that you would do this work in our church family, that you'd strengthen us by your grace to walk more and more as you would have us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.